You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, welcome back, my good people. This is the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast, and this is your host, uh, Dr. Fitz, also known as Jay, and I also have the my, my hype man here, <laughs> Dr. Cole. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Cole here. See, sometimes Jay doesn't know whether to go by Jay or Dr. Fitz, man. You know, you got to keep it consistent. Hey, man, many names, many different names. I answer to all of them. Um, but guys, before we get too far, we have a great show uh, in store for you guys right now. But before we get too far, uh, whatever social media you guys are following us on or you found out about us from, hey, subscribe to us, like us, add us. We need you. We need your support. We've been working. Hey, find our blog at nailedittheortho.com. Uh, uh, you can find us on Instagram, uh, Nailed It Ortho. You, we we got a Facebook page going, nailed it ortho. So pretty much, you know, <laughs> a common like, theme here. It's a it's a it's a common thing, right? So find us, guys. And even if you like this show, be sure to like us on iTunes. You know, every like counts. So we really appreciate it. Um. So yeah, Cody, we got a good talk going right now. Yeah, she did a great or, job. Yeah, she did great. It was on a uh, pretty much pediatrics. Have you had any? Orthopedic pediatric experience yet? No, so actually in, in our program, we don't start peds until second year. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. I heard it's a lot of fun and, you know, you get to do a lot of cases. I heard that reductions are very satisfying. And maybe you can speak to that since you've done some peds. But yeah, I, I have done, done a little bit of a little bit of peds. And it is, they have like, you know, kids have the pretty strong periosteum. So you always have something to work with. And, you know, most Times you get like this both bone fracture that you know you just got to give it a little tweak and boom it looks perfect so yeah uh, it's pretty cool it's it's cool and plus their kids everything heals I mean like really you know honestly if they fall you they and break something you could pretty much put it in a bag and tell them to come back and see you in three months and it'll pretty much heal up on its own. Kids, it's, the it's, kid, did uh, the kids start crying when you walk in the room? That normally happen for you? Not so much, man. It's more so. Uh, it's the grown-ups that hate to see me coming. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like they know know what's about to happen when they see me. Plot twist. Yeah, man. But last part, the worst part of pediatrics is dealing with the parents. The parents are so man. just on edge, man. So you got to spend a little extra time keeping them cool. But let's get to our talk today. So we have a great one coming. It's uh, our our ho- well, no, our speaker. Excuse me. It's going to be Doctor Jennifer Weiss. Uh, Doctor Weiss. Uh, went to residency at Baylor College of uh, Medicine in Houston, Texas. She did her fellowship, uh, pediatric fellowship, at Children's Hospitals uh, Los Angeles. And now she's working for Southern California Permanente Medical Group, uh, Los Angeles Medical Center. And also, right when uh, we found her, she was actually just nominated for, or not nominated, she was just chosen as the chair of the AAOS Communications Cabinet. So. That's another little plug she had going on, and she really helped us out, just kind of expanding out to the AAOS, so shouts out to her. Uh, but she's going to talk about supracondylar uh, humerus fractures today, and I learned a lot. It was great, and I expect you guys to learn a lot, too. So, hey, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. Dr. Weiss, welcome to the show. Such an honor to have you on, and welcome to Nailed Ortho. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be part of your innovative uh, educational experience. <laughs> and I know we missed each other the first time, but <laughs> it happened to be the topic of the day is actually what you got called to go do. So I think that was just um, that was just hilarious. And um, we're glad to have you on. Yeah, with a little bit of life imitating art there. <laughs> <laughs> so we typically, you know, like to start off with just asking a few questions, getting to know you better as a person. So mine is the general age old question. What got you interested in like pediatric orthopedics? What made you choose that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the short answer is my father was an orthopedic surgeon. And so when I was in kindergarten, you know, they'd go around the room and say, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I was like, well, I'm going to be a ballerina and an orthopedic surgeon. And um, I am not a ballerina, but I am an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and on that topic, I mean, with, with pediatrics, do, how, how do you feel about just, uh, I guess, the breadth of the amount of orthopedics that you get to do with kids? Because, I mean, it, it's it's a pretty wide range of things that can come into the pediatric office. So what, what, what are your thoughts on some of that? Yeah. So, so it's, um, the, it, it's a great question. So as I went through orthopedic residency, um, I began to, as one does sort of, um, number one, fall in love with everything as I did it and then start to weed things out for myself. Um, I actually thought early on in my career that I was going to do uh, sports, and um, I really enjoyed sports. And what I didn't admit to myself at that time, I, I finished training in um, 2003, was that sports at that time, and still, was was um, very, very male-dominated, um, all of orthopedics is. Um, and as I started to do peds, I recognized uh, two things. Number one, that I got to operate on the whole body, which was exciting. I loved the pathology. I loved the kids. But I also um, loved having some women around me. And so um, I didn't recognize it at the time. But when I look back, I realized that that's probably a big reason why I chose peds. I then went back and did some extra training with sports. So my current practice is a combination of pediatric um, orthopedics, pediatric trauma, and then I do young adult sports as well. That's a pretty, pretty interesting uh, practice. I, I kind of like that set up. That's, that's pretty nice. Um, and also we were just doing a little, uh, I guess we were just doing a little, you know, digging on the internet and we saw that you also are tied in with the AAOS and we were just going to ask, you know, how are things working with the, as far as the media relations for the AAOS? Yeah, so I, um, I love my volunteer job with the AAOS. So I'm um, the chair of the communications cabinet, which puts me in the role of working, um, yeah, with media relations. Um, I get to interact uh, with the board of directors very closely and attend some of their meetings. Um, and it is, um, it's been just such an amazing road to um, sort of see behind the curtain. So I, I was able a couple years back to be a junior member of the board. And um, it I did not recognize until that time how much the Orthopedic Academy does for me as an orthopedic surgeon. And um, in terms of the education, the advocacy, all this great stuff. And um, 
So now clearly I've drunk the Kool-Aid and um, it's, it's an amazing, and it's amazing. It's an amazing organization to be part of. And especially this year, um, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are aware that we have our first woman president, Christy Weber. And she is, I'm really fortunate to call her a dear friend and mentor. And um, it's a really, really cool time to be part of our organization, especially to be a woman in our organization. So um, if people are ever looking for opportunities in the AAOS, feel free to contact contact me or I can point people in the right way, in the right direction. No, oh, that's awesome. That's, that's great. And, and they got me making, making me think that I want to do something with the <laughs> AOS now, you know, you I, got it. I will yeah. be happy to, I will be happy to talk with you about that offline or online or however you want to do it. Sure. And, and just really quickly. So the last question I had um, was, so what type of things do you do outside of the hospital? Is there any interest or anything that you like to do? Yeah, so um, I have three children. Um, I'm hoping none of them come in here to help me on this podcast today. Um, so they are awesome. I have um, an awesome husband. Um, I love to do yoga, um, play tennis, and my complete obsession is with my Peloton bike. And um, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's a spinning bike that you can kind of do on demand at home and you get to race with people. And oh. I have some, um, a bunch of orthopedic friends actually across the country that we compete with one another all the time on it. And it's, it's super fun. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty nice. Actually. I, I have a friend who's kind of into that as well. So I kind of know what you're, what you're getting at with that. Um, it's a cult. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes I, I agree. Um, so, I want to just go ahead and jump into the case of the day. Okay. Um, So let's say we're, you know, we're on call and there's 11 year old kid that comes into the ED. Say he fell while playing on the, uh, the monkey bars at the playground and he comes in with a elbow deformity. He won't allow you to move his, his elbow, uh, having the pain around that area. And pretty much from the, the x-ray, we can tell it's a supracondylar fracture. Okay, where do we go from here? Yeah, um, so first of all, I'm going to, um, uh, 11 year old will almost um, follow everything that I, would, that I would like to talk about. We can certainly go into 11 year old a little bit more, but the more probably common age group that we'll see this in is really five to 10 years of age. As we get up into the early teenage years, I will just throw out that some Children and teenagers are large and may fall into more adult-like treatment of the elbow. Um, so just to, um, that's one of the first things that's going through my head. So if we're going to stick with it being an 11-year-old, what I would say is how the, I'm, if I'm seeing the patient, I'll know this, but if I'm over the phone hearing this from the ER doctor, I'm going to say, how big is this kid? Um, and that's my uh, sort of algorithm is going to start right there. Am I going to be thinking about this as an, as an adult or a child? And the physes around the elbow do start to close some of them around age 11. So that's another consideration for me at that age. You know what? So, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to blame this on my, on my colleague. This my colleague made this case. My colleague made this case. I want everybody to know that. Okay, let's change this. Let's change this age because that's not that's not the topic that we were going for. Okay, let's say that we have uh, six year old. Okay. All right. Let's go six year old. I love the blame. Immediate. Like it. Okay. Uh, here we so, go. So, um, 
And am I on the phone or am I, am I, uh, or they call me in my clinic and I get to go over and see the patient? Uh, let's say you can get to go see this patient if you like. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So the first thing that, um, that I'm going to do when I see this patient is I'm going to check their neurovascular status. And one pearl that I'll, that I'll give, if we have a six-year-old, the likelihood, if they have a broken and deformed elbow, of showing me an awesome neurovascular exam is pretty much slim to none. So I want to keep that in mind, although I'm going to try to get that immediately. One of the pearls that I'll give is if there's a parent around, the child is going to be much happier to be touched and close touched by and close to their parent than me. So I will often by proxy have me, them help me with the neuro exam right off the bat. I'm going to feel for a pulse though. And that's super important because if there is not a pulse, I'm going to have a different algorithm that I, that I follow. And I'm also going to see if the skin is intact. So if it's an open injury, it's going to push me um, in a different direction as well. In addition, what I'm going to look for is their skin tenting and is there antecubital ecchymosis? Because if there is, I'm more worried about this fracture in uh, the short term and thinking about whether this child needs to get to the operating room this evening tonight as opposed to being able to put them on ice until early morning. And and one of the things that we you know we came across when we were when we were reading and preparing for this topic was uh was looking at the pulse and then looking at the perfusion. Like is it warm and you know, are they well mm-hmm. perfused? So can you kind of go through that that algorithm or kind of how, how we should be thinking about that? Absolutely. So if I feel a pulse, great. If I don't feel a pulse, the next thing I'm gonna look at is just what you said. Is this a warm and perfused Um, upper extremity because of collateral blood flow, even though the radial pulse is not there. Um, And that's going to put them in different different realms. If I don't feel a pulse and I've got a cooler, bluer arm, what I'm going to want to do immediately in the emergency room is a reduction because oftentimes reducing that fracture will re, um, will free the artery up from the fracture site and reperfuse that arm. So that's not going to be the ultimate treatment, um, assuming that we have a displaced supracondylar fracture, but um, that will be an urgent way of getting blood flow. If I have a pulseless um, arm, but it's well perfused. I'm not going to go messing with it in that emergency room in terms of reducing it. I'm just going to get myself to the operating room. And then okay. when I'm in the operating room, I am going to, under controlled environment, do a reduction and see if I can get a pulse back. Um, if the arm is um, well perfused, meaning warm, um, and it never had a pulse pre, and I don't have a pulse post, I'm going to observe that patient, and I'm not necessarily going to open and explore the artery. And many of us, by the way, even pediatric orthopedists who do this all the time, will call our vascular surgeons if we know that there is um, any doubt about the perfusion. Um, And the time to do that is actually from the emergency room saying, I've got this kid. I am bringing them uh, to the operating room. You know, please stand by. I might need you. If um, there was a pulse at any time, and I reduce the elbow, whether it's in the emergency room or in the operating room, and I lose a pulse, and that is, I'm not going to leave the operating room without getting that pulse back. 
So that's the difference. If there was never a pulse and the arm was always perfused nicely by collateral blood flow, there is a role for continuing to observe that child, that arm postoperatively. But if there was a pulse and we lost it iatrogenically, then we're obligated to um, not leave the operating room without exploring that artery. And and in these patients, when you're looking, when you know when you're doing your first physical exam, and now we're doing our neuro exam, you know we've we've assessed the vascular status. Now we're doing our neuro exam. Can you kind of go through some of the common uh, neurovascular injuries that we see in in this type of uh, in this type of injury? Exactly. Yep. So most. Uh, supracondylar fractures that are displaced are extended. And the most common nerve injury is the anterior interosseous nerve. Um, And that is the um, IP flexion of the thumb and DIP of the index. Um, It's the asking the child to make an okay sign. And if they can't do that, um, then I'm worried about the anterior interosseous nerve. If it's an extension type, it's more commonly a radial nerve that can get injured. And then median nerve is not immune, so that can be injured as well. Um, And these are also indications um, for uh, if there is a nerve injury of any kind of bringing the child to the operating room um, in haste as opposed to icing and waiting for the next morning because going along with nerve injury means it was a bigger injury and probably a bigger risk of great swelling and potentially a compartment syndrome. And so on that same note, so when you're trying to evaluate these different nerves in the child who just went through this traumatic experience, they're hurting, you know, they don't really know what's going on as all these people. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, Mm -hmm. any tips or, you know, tricks to kind of help you know, yeah. to determine what's going on with these kids sometimes? So that's the great question. So um, preferably, I will have the child splinted um, uh, before, if I'm having trouble getting a neurovascular exam, the first thing I'm going to do is get them splinted. Because once they're splinted, they're a little bit more comfortable. The second thing that I'm going to do is use the parent as a proxy. So it's, um, I, I don't wear a white coat into the room, by the way. Um, I want to go into the room. I want to make them, you know, have some semblance of a bedside manner, despite the fact that I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And then I'm going to understand that um, showing the parents how to show the child what to do, their, their child is most of the time more likely going to listen to them than me. And then the quick and dirty neuro, um, neuro, neuro exam for um for this injury is can they make an okay sign? Can they give us a thumbs up and can they cross their fingers over? And so that will show us AIN, radial nerve and ulnar nerve. And and for the folks listening for say, this may be their first exposure orthopedics and, and they may not know what you mean by extension type versus flexion type. Can you just quickly yep. go over what that means? Absolutely. So most of the time, so supracondylar humerus fracture means there's a break of the humerus, which is the arm bone, and it's directly above the elbow or adjacent to the elbow. Most of the time, the way a child breaks their arm in this spot, and this is the most common elbow fracture for kids, is by a fall of some sort, monkey bars are the biggest culprit, and they fall onto an outstretched arm and Extension means um, that it is the uh, the wrist is moving away from the body, and so the arm is extended. Um, and the it is much less common for it to be flexed, meaning that the arm comes toward the body. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's the difference between those two types. There's also a type that uh, we um, that we will sometimes see, which is an unstable, um, really bad fracture. We call it a, a, a type four. So the classification is a type one, not displaced, non-operative. A type two is hinged and is hinged back, but still connected through the bone um, on the back of the bone. And the type three is fully displaced into extension. And then the type four is the one that goes back and forth from flexion to extension. And that was a Gartling classification, yes. uh, if I'm correct? Okay. Correct. Okay, perfect. And you said in extension type, our most common nerve injury is going to be our anterior interosseous nerve versus correct. inflection. We may have, you know, somewhat of a radial nerve neuropraxia. Correct. And then as long as we're talking about nerves, the um, iatrogenic, like the doctor injury, um, the most common one is actually the ulnar nerve. Because if um, historically the way we fixed these involved placing pins both laterally and medially, and there's a big risk of, of getting that ulnar nerve with the medial pins. In the last decade or so, we have moved mostly to just using lateral pins. Okay. Okay. And so one thing I wanted to touch on is the imaging. So, you know, when we get x-rays, like how do we assess it? And like, what are we looking for? Are there different angles, different things we should be cued into? Um, Absolutely. So first of all, the x-rays, we want to be sure that the x-rays are happening of the distal humerus um, as opposed to um, as opposed to trying to get the proximal aspect of that form or what have you. And when the kid's in pain, it is um, very common that the x-ray tech, with all the best intentions, doesn't want to hurt the kid, and they get some cattywampus views. So it's really important um, to have good views. The time it's most important to have good views, quite honestly, are those fractures that are displaced and we're trying to make a decision as to whether surgery is necessary or not. If the fracture does not displace, and um, I'll go over the way we we think about that, um, then we can treat these without surgery. So the two views that we're looking at are an AP view, and from the front, what we want to be sure of is that we don't see the elbow going into valgus meaning the arm moving away from the body, or varus, meaning the arm moving toward the body. It's more common that these go into varus than valgus, and it can be subtle. The lateral view is the view that's um, a bit easier to, um, to think through, quite honestly. And what we are looking at on the lateral view is there's something we call the anterior humerus line. It's the line that you draw on the front part of the arm bone. And as you draw it down, it should go through the capitellum, which is the circle in the front of the elbow. Now, little kids, we do know with some research that it doesn't always bisect or go through that middle third of the capitellum. Um, In little kids, sometimes it strays a little bit um, uh, anterior than that, but we do want that line to go through the capitellum in some way, shape, or form. And if that anterior humeral line bisects or goes through that capitellum on the lateral, And then on the AP, we can draw this thing called a Bauman's angle, which is long axis of the humerus with the the articular surface of the humerus. And that should range from somewhere around 10 to 25 degrees. 
that angle sometimes is best to assess with getting a contralateral view of the non-broken elbow. Um, because there's a 15 degree range in that, we want to be sure that we are looking at this kid's normal and not the normal in the book. Bauman's angle has a lot of what we call inter-observer variability. So it's not as great a tool as just comparing to the lateral side. I'm sorry, the contralateral well side and the lateral um, view itself as well. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I always have to remind myself that, you know, our maker definitely gave us uh, <laughs> two pairs of both things. So if you ever in question, just look at the other one and it'll give you a start. Okay. Yep, love it. Um, so that was definitely some of the high yield things I think we should look for for imaging. But my next question is, before we get too far into treatment, because we're still in the ED with this patient as yep. of right now, how do, what is the maneuver you use to reduce these type of, types of fractures? So the first thing, before I'm even thinking about a maneuver, is this kid needs to be relaxed. And if I'm trying to make, and this goes for any reduction in the ER, um, if I'm, my first tool is making sure that we have some sort of pain control, sedation. I'm not going to use a hematoma block for a supracondylar humerus fracture, um, but just remembering that that is the first, um, the first bullet point in our minds is how are we going to keep this person comfortable while we're yanking on their bones. Um, what I'm going to do once they're comfortable is I'm going to look to have an assistant, whether it's a technician, a nurse, um, a resident, anybody to help me with a counter traction. And the first thing I'm going to do is pull traction on this elbow. Now we always, the tenets of reduction is we want to recreate the deformity. So I'm assuming this is an extension type. I'm going to recreate the extension and then I'm going to milk with traction um, and, and hyperflex the elbow and come into pronation is almost always the way we're going to get, um, get this elbow back reduced. And, um, Another uh, pearl is if you're lucky enough to have fluoroscopy in the emergency room, mm -hmm. move fluoroscopy to get your views, not the elbow. Because if you have a reduction, if you try to move the elbow to get your lateral, you'll often lose the reduction. So swing the um, imaging, not the elbow. Not the elbow. I got to admit, Dr. Weiss, that was more so just for my own personal knowledge. I, uh, I, have, I have to go back to my children's rotation in about, uh, about two months, and I haven't been on since my very first month of residency. So, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so now that let's say we got this, this fracture, we have it back reduced at this point. I guess really we haven't even said that it 100% needs surgery. So, we went through the Gartland classification, so maybe we could we could use that to kind of help help us along with treatment. But how, where do we go now as far as the treatment plans and options for for this fracture? Okay, so if it's a type one and it's not displaced, and we have a nice Bauman's angle, and we have the anterior humeral line going through the capitellum, this patient is does not need surgery. Um, when we cast. Uh, at these elbows or splint these elbows, it is very important that we are not flexing the elbow beyond 90 degrees. Um, in my talk on this, I have a picture of a hyperflexed elbow with a big red 
X on it. Like, do not do this. And that's because that's how we can give them a compartment syndrome. So if a reduction requires a hyperflexed elbow, we have to bring this child to the operating room to maintain the reduction with pins as opposed to the cast. Um, So type one, we're not operating. Type two, those are the ones that may may benefit from a reduction. Remember that type two has the posterior hinge of the bone still attached. So with that flexion and pronation, we might be able to get that hinge, that anterior hinge uh, to sit nicely and put them in a castor splint, but again, not beyond 90 degrees. And a type three, there is not a scenario in which I'm going to treat a type three without surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to need pins to keep it in place. Okay. What about a type four? Also surgery. Also surgery. Now, now, you know, when we're reading up on it, there are different literature about like the pin configuration and Mm -hmm. using lateral pins, just using like, or two cross pins or two lateral pins and a cross pin. Can you kind of go through that and like how we should think about, you know, our fixation when we're, when we're trying to fix these different types of fractures? So, the, so I have to give you my bias. I was trained at Children's <laughs> Hospital Los Angeles, and I worked there for the first eight years of my career. And my mentor is a guy named Dave Skaggs, and he's known as the lateral pinning man of the elbow. Ah. Um, and so I was, you know, I was brought up by him. In Los Angeles, in the eight years that I was at Children's Hospital Los Angeles pinning, I don't know, five, our group pinned at least, you know, five elbows a week, um, I saw medial pins very rarely. Like I could probably count on one hand. Um, the indications for us at CHLA um, to use that medial pin were if there was just not stability possible with lateral pins. Now, lateral pins have to be done in the right way. Um, lateral pins have got to be parallel or divergent from one another to do their job. If they are convergent, then they are not going to maintain a reduction. And so the biomechanical studies that have been done say that if lateral pins are are done properly with parallel or divergence, that they are as good as cross pins and medial pins. We want to be careful if you're cross pinning and you cross pin at the fracture site, that's bad for any fracture. Um, But um, the ideal configuration is parallel or divergent lateral pins. And the way I do it, and most of us in pediatric orthopedics do it, is if it's a type 2 and I have an awesome 2-pin structure, um, I might keep that. If it's a type 3, I'm going to use 3 pins. Um, Once in a while, I'll use 3 pins for a type 2, and once in a while, I'll even use 4 pins for a type 3. And I'm going to use um, 0.62 K-wires. Really, in almost any age group, if I have a tiny person under the age of two, very rarely I'll go to the um, uh, four or fives, the littler ones, but that is um, very, very rare for me. It's almost always six 2K wires. And, and, and when you place your pin, you're, pace, you're placing it just proximal to the capitellum. Is that right? Yes. And you can go through the capitellum. It is fine to go through the capitellum. And for those who may not know, when you say converging versus diverging pins, what exactly do you mean? Yep. So converging means that you're starting further away and ending closer together. So like coming to a tip of a triangle. Diverging means you're starting closer together and moving away from and parallel. is They are even Steven. Okay. Absolutely. I think this is great. Let's see. So just to kind of go back over some of the complications we already have mentioned, 
I know we said um, there are some nerve injuries that you have to watch out for. There's compartment syndrome. You don't want to overflex or hyperflex. Um, mm-hmm. Is there some, I guess, what other complications should we watch out for with these types of fractures uh, that sure. kind of happen common, commonly? So missed compartment syndrome can lead to a Volkmann's contracture. Um, and that is um, if an elbow is incredibly swollen, the compartment syndrome is missed, then these kids will have kind of a balled up hand. That's pretty rare in this day and age, but that is another one that our listeners might hear about or read about. Um, some other um, uh, things that can happen with the supracondylar fracture is if they are left in a tiny bit of varus, um, this elbow can uh, develop into a, what's known as a cubitus varus, which is the elbow is further away from the body than the wrist and the shoulder. And that is mostly a cosmetic deformity. However, there's some literature to suggest that that might um, set up a less stable elbow um, for adults. There's some good literature out of Italy showing that when um, manual laborers have a cubitus varus, they might have a higher um, uh, rate of having a, an, an unstable elbow. Um, so cubitus varus is another complication that can occur. There's also um, things that infection can occur. So, you know, going through the things that I warn my patients about, we can see, see pin site granulomas. So when you use pins to fix fractures, sometimes there can be this overgrowth of the um, subcutaneous kind of uh, tissue that makes these balls of tissues. So sometimes you have to, um, when you pull the pins, the way we treat those is with um, silver nitrate sticks, like those little matches. Um, and um, and then a big big risk is stiffness. Yeah. So um, I start talking about the risk of stiffness even when I meet the family because the way that I will explain what we're going to do is we are going to assuming I'm operating we are going to get this elbow into the correct position we are going to fix it in the correct position and we're going to hold it in the correct position likely for three weeks with a cast and these pins. But once the cast and the pins come out and the elbow is healed, then we're going to switch directions. And we are now going to ask your kid to do exactly what they don't want to do, which is move their elbow to prevent stiffness. So that conversation has to start early because parents, I don't know if you guys are parents. I now get it now that I have three kids. You don't want your kids to hurt. And if it looks like it's hurting to move their elbow after surgery, our parental instinct is to not make them do it. So they need to be on, on board with that super early. I like it. And I think this was a great overall talk on this subject. And you just kind of touched on it at the at the end there. I really do think dealing with the parents is probably harder deal, than dealing with the actual kids at times. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> But overall, I think it was good because, uh, like I say, I'm, I'm going to be starting uh, pediatrics again in a couple of months. And yeah, this is one of the things I remember seeing often. So it's good to have a, a good recap on this. But Dr. Weiss, before we end it, I would we always give our speakers a chance to mention whatever kind of uh, social media they may have or email address or any kind of way for our listeners to reach out to you and, and ask you any questions or anything like that. Do you have any uh, means of ways that they can reach out to you if they want to? Absolutely. I'm on um, Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is my mom the surgeon. And I'm always happy to hear from people. 
And um, I'm happy to hear from anybody, but I, I love it when young women reach out to me. And um, I've, I've found myself a number of mentees in this way. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Well, I, I, again, thank you so much for coming on the show and talk and doing this talk. I think we covered a lot. I think we covered a, a great amount of information. I think it'll be really beneficial and, and very helpful and for anybody that listens to this and that should at least have a general idea of how to manage this if this comes and rolls into the emergency department. So, Dwight, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys are rock stars. I love that you're giving this to the world. I hope you all enjoyed listening to that episode with Dr. Wise just as much as we enjoyed recording it. I hope you all learned a lot. I know we definitely learned a lot. Now, follow us at Instagram at NailedItOrtho. You know, see pictures, clinical pictures, and typically with all of our posts we have, or at least try to have an article that backs up whatever thing that we post. So if you like orthopedic info and knowledge, follow us at NailedItOrtho. Go ahead and leave a review in iTunes if you can. Rate us however many stars you think we're worth. Hopefully four or five, hopefully just five. But for show notes, go to nailedortho.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you can get exclusive info mailed directly to you, showing up in your inbox every day. So without further ado, go ahead and listen to the next episode.